Hi, and welcome to a special series of The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. And this is Eastern Africa's Jihadis, produced in partnership with the Friedrich Ebert Foundation, or FES. Over five weeks, we're exploring the roots and spread of jihadism across the eastern African coast, from Somalia to Mozambique. Today we have Rashid Abdi, a former Crisis Group Horn of Africa director and a longtime analyst of the region, to zoom us back out and discuss what the regional jihadist picture looks like today and moving forward. We also, of course, discuss how the Taliban takeover in Afghanistan is already shifting this conversation, especially in Somalia. Rashid, uh, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much, Alan, for having me. Now, we've started on this little mini-series uh, with, the, with the history of uh, jihadist ideologies in East Africa and their spread, and then we've looked deeper into some of the specific contexts. I, I want to talk more about the, the go back to the broader regional picture with you. How do we know about how all these groups are regionally connected? We, we haven't talked much about it, but the jihadists themselves are, of course, also divided between probable ISIS and al-Qaeda franchises. So, so help us paint a picture. How does this all fit together in a regional landscape? It's good, Alan, that we are having this conversation at a momentous time in, in Afghanistan when the Taliban is now back in power. And I think it's important to, to remind ourselves of the significance of this moment for all the jihadi groups that have been waging armed rebellion in far-flung corners of the world. I think the spectacle of Taliban taking control of Kabul after 20 years uh, is quite, I think, significant. But um, coming back to these groups uh, in East Africa, the wider horn, they are definitely related. They come, they sprout from the same Salafi jihadi soil that the Taliban also emerged from. They are, in the initial years, they were actually very close-knit and very uh, connected. Al-Shabaab was uh, very much connected to Al-Qaeda Central, uh, but then uh, Al-Shabaab also um, spawned its own uh, many franchises. And so you had uh, groups emerging in the Kenyan coast that were loosely affiliated to Al-Shabaab, whose members actually fought alongside Al-Shabaab, but uh, had their own grievances and brought back the, the, the jihad into uh, the east coast of Africa. Uh, you also had uh, groups operating in urban Kenya, who uh, places like Nairobi, in the slums of Majengo, and so these groups operated very close-knit cells, were loosely affiliated to to Al Shabaab, and not necessarily operationally directed by by Al Shabaab, but they share the same uh, Salafi jihadi uh, ideology. And then uh, towards um, the, when ISIS emerged, ISIS was seen by groups that were franchises of Al-Qaeda, uh, began to see ISIS as a threat, as an ideological rival. Uh, some, of course, switched uh, sides. But in, in the east coast of Africa, apart from the group operating in Mozambique, uh, most of the groups that are operating in, in the Kenyan coast have sworn allegiance to Al-Qaeda. And so... Uh, would be probably uh, closely following what's happening in, in Afghanistan. Mm. So, so how should we think about the, the regional picture? Should we see these very much as very interlinked uh, networks, perhaps between two different sort of competing franchises? Or, or should we view these as, as fairly decentralized, you know, country by country, location by location groups? 
I think uh, the latter, because um, jihadi groups have always operated in a very loose and decentralized way for operational reasons, for security uh, reasons. But increasingly, we are beginning to see major splits emerge within the larger Salafi uh, jihadi groups. And these pits Al-Qaeda against uh, ISIS. In East Africa, uh, apart from the groups operating in Mozambique and also a small tiny group which is operating in Central Africa, there hasn't been any group that has emerged to, to claim allegiance to ISIS. And so most of the groups are basically connected or linked to Al-Qaeda Central, have trained with Al-Shabaab or have members in Al-Shabaab. And so Al-Shabaab is in some ways seen as the uh, senior partner in East Africa and, uh, and the wider yeah. home. Um, if you are an aspiring jihadi and wanted to create a jihadi group, um, you know, before going to Al-Qaeda, you probably went through uh, Al-Shabaab. So would you say that Al-Qaeda, in terms of the competing franchises um, of ISIS and Al-Qaeda, that Al-Qaeda is the one still with the momentum in this region? Absolutely. And I think um, it has always been overlooked that uh, Al-Qaeda has built uh, formidable uh, networks in East Africa. Remember, even before the emergence of Al-Shabaab, Al-Qaeda operated um, cells in the east coast of Africa, had identified Kenya in particular uh, and Tanzania as strategic regions, uh, as a bridgehead to the rest of Africa. In 1998, Al-Qaeda carried out uh, twin bombings of the U.S. embassy embassies in Nairobi, but also in Dar es Salaam. And that was long before we had uh, of any groups like um, uh, Al-Shabaab. And so the ambition was there, the planning was there, and the logistical and the support network and structures were there. Uh, Many of the early recruits eventually ended up joining Al-Shabaab. These are people like uh, Nabhan, who was later killed in a US drone strike. So the East Coast of Africa is is deemed by, by uh, Al-Qaeda as a strategic, uh, just as the Arab Peninsula, Yemen, is seen as strategic. Um, if, he, if you go back to also to the literature of Al-Qaeda, you will find that they actually identify the east coast of Africa as part of the old Darul Islam or the abode of Islam. Um, and so in their, in their thinking, uh, this is quintessentially an Islamic territory that must be part of the future uh, emirate or caliphate. Um, Al-Qaeda was very much present uh, in East Africa, had built a lot of support. But gradually, I think what happened is that Al-Shabaab became very strong and absorbed many of these uh, small groups into, into itself. Um, and Al-Qaeda gave uh, Al-Shabaab greater reign to actually micromanage uh, the jihadi groups on its behalf. Um, but also because Al-Qaeda itself was hemmed in, was, uh, being, uh, was under pressure, and um, there were internal squabbles, but also a lot of military pressure from NATO. Uh, and so that, I think, is, is why progressively Al-Shabaab emerged as, as the uh, major um, Al-Qaeda franchise that also acted as the mentor, uh, as, a, um, as a trainer uh, for all these um, uh, jihadi groups that operate in East Africa. Um, you can even see that uh, many of the, some of the early recruits who went back to Mozambique and started um, their jihad there, although they switched side, they still retain the name uh, Al-Shabaab. So it is a, a name that among the jihadi youth, you know, evokes uh, pride 
and they see mm. al-shabab as probably uh, the kind of successful uh, insurgency they would want uh, to wage their homelands. And what has been the attraction of ISIS for some of these groups? And, and I'm also wondering what you make of this debate, um, especially over the uh, insurgencies in northern Mozambique, but also with the ADF in, in eastern Congo. There's a, a group claiming allegiance to ISIS in Somalia as well, um, about whether these you know, groups are ISIS or not, and whether or not it's, it's, it's useful to categorize them as such. You're right, Alan. The, I think um, just carrying the Monica ISIS itself is very powerful. And so we must be careful against uh, these groups that all claim uh, they are uh, ISIS branches. Um, they may not be, and I think they, they basically want to leverage uh, that name for strategic reasons. But uh, clearly, there is, uh, I think, a subtle difference between Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Uh, although both, uh, as I said, you know, uh, have emerged from the larger Salafi jihadi ideology and theology, ISIS uh, put a lot of emphasis on creating a global caliphate. Al-Qaeda itself, in the early years and in some of its literature, the term of creating global caliphate was there. Uh, but this was not articulated uh, much more clearer. Uh, ISIS completely uh, overturned that, and I think gave the focus on creating uh, the caliphate. Um, and so uh, this was a very powerful and compelling idea for young people who are yearning for, for direction. And this explains why many of the jihadi groups that were disillusioned for one reason or another with uh, either al-Shabaab, but also with al-Qaeda, uh, saw ISIS as probably a much more uh, focused group. Um, so that, I think, the idea of a caliphate was very uh, powerful as far as the, uh, these other groups were concerned. Then I think um, there is also a difference in the sense that in some ways uh, ISIS was much more militant, much more uh, hardline in its policies and its, uh, the way it operated than Al-Qaeda. And this gave a young, more militant-minded um, jihadist uh, a cause to rally around. And in some ways, Al-Qaeda will look now softer. But there, there is also another, another element to this, which is that ISIS has never had huge following in East Africa. If you look at even Somalia, uh, the splinter group which uh, broke away from Al-Shabaab, led by Abdul Qadir Moumin, um, then formed uh, a small ISIS cell, roughly around 200 people. Um, they retreated to the Puntland region of Somalia and waged a very unsuccessful insurgency there. They are now even much more smaller than they were. They are now a, um, a deadly urban terror group which operates in Mogadishu, carrying out assassinations. But beyond that, their ideology hasn't had any traction among young people. And still, I think, um, Al-Shabaab uh, and Al-Qaeda Central's uh, theology and ideology remain much more uh, dominant uh, in East Africa. And, and what, what do you make of this debate that's going on about whether or not it's helpful or not to recognize some of these um, supposed ISIS affiliates, uh, for instance, in Congo and northern Mozambique as ISIS, or whether or not that's in some ways unhelpful and a, and a distraction? I think we must invest in, in really uh, undertaking critical analysis of uh, uh, the way these groups are structured, what they espouse. It is still worthwhile to pursue to what extent uh, these groups are not just 
invoking the name ISIS to scare everyone, uh, but to what extent they are actually operationally and logistically affiliated to ISIS. Because if it is the case, then I think we are in serious trouble because um, ISIS uh, and the way it operates is clearly much more deadly than, than Al-Qaeda Central. Um, I think to a large extent, um, East Africa has been spared uh, some of the deadly manifestations of uh, Salafi jihadis in that you see in West Africa, um, especially mass beheadings, uh, mass abductions and mass killings. We haven't seen that kind of uh, terror tactics uh, in East Africa. Uh, and so if ISIS manages to gain uh, sympathizers, but also begins to create active cells uh, in East Africa, then I think, uh, you know, that would, would be a huge problem for the security services. But as I said, so far, uh, there is very little evidence uh, of a big ISIS operation to penetrate and infiltrate all Al-Qaeda groups and take them over. There have been, um, you know, a number of recruits who uh, left East Africa and uh, passed through Sudan and went through Turkey to Syria to fight, and some of these people have died. So individual isolated cases of ISIS membership um, has, does not really confirm that there is a big ISIS um, cell that is operating. Now, on the Congo, I'm not very uh, vast in that uh, terrain, but I, I can say that also um, it is very likely that many of these groups um, are basically invoking the name ISIS in order to generate interest, but also to uh, create alarm and fear. So that, that is, I think, the way I would, I would characterize it. Now, we've done some deep dives on Somalia and Mozambique. What is the status currently of the counter-jihadi um, policy efforts in Kenya and Uganda, which, of course, have, uh, as you're talking about, have also suffered quite a bit from... Um, from Al-Qaeda um, and Al-Shabaab attacks in the past? Mm. I think um, Kenya definitely has, um, has a long way to go uh, in really um, uh, devising an effective uh, counter Al-Shabaab strategy. There has been um, some success, especially in the Kenyan coast, where um, some of the mosques that were being operated by pro-Al-Shabaab groups have been taken over by moderate uh, clerics. These are mosques that were run by Abu Drogo and his, uh, his uh, followers. Uh, but it is very likely that many of these jihadi groups have basically just uh, gone underground uh, and are just beating their time uh, and waiting to re-emerge. Um, the, there has been also uh, a growing number of returnees from, from uh, the ranks of Al-Shabaab. These are young boys who are recruited by Al-Shabaab. The Kenyan uh, government uh, suggests that um, hundreds have given themselves up in the last uh, few months and uh, probably over a year now. Um, this is quite significant, but uh, I don't think Kenya should, should uh, uh, celebrate too early because um, the Al-Shabaab, uh, I think, still has the will and capacity to conduct uh, major attacks. Uh, in urban Kenya. But I think the biggest problem now is Northeastern Kenya where Al-Shabaab has basically built very formidable structures of not only support, but also uh, is able to conduct major IED attacks on security convoys. Hundreds of uh, security personnel have been killed in the last two years. Um, 
many of the roads are now pretty much impassable for security services. A number of the APCs that were procured from China uh, have basically been disabled by Al-Shabaab IEDs. In many ways, what we have in Northeastern Kenya is not just uh, Al-Shabaab terrorism, but a growing Al-Shabaab insurgency. And that is completely different ballgame. Um, and so I think Kenya is still uh, in, in serious trouble as far as uh, Al-Shabaab is concerned and needs to up its game. Having said that, I think the, the issue is not simply uh, military. Um, of course, Kenya has to, to you know, procure better uh, armored personnel carriers, has to have a more uh, robust military uh, force that has the morale, that has the kits to really take on the jihadi groups operating in Northeastern Kenya. But at the same time, I think jihadi groups um, feed on uh, government uh, failure, they, they feed on government uh, you know, structures which are, have decayed or are not present uh, in many parts of Northeastern Kenya. Um, and this discontent, uh, local discontent is what uh, Al-Shabaab feeds on to, to expand its, uh, its activities. Um, and so I think there has to be also a parallel effort to improve uh, the social, economic and political uh, conditions prevailing in many parts of these uh, peripheral areas in, in northeastern Kenya. Uh, because without that, um, uh, an exclusively military strategy uh, is not going to work. Hmm. And, and how about in Ethiopia? Al-Shabaab has had a difficult time in the past, you know, penetrating what's been quite a strong security state. Um, are, are there risks that that reverses now? I think this is a good question. Um, it is important to, to mention that... Um, um, Al-Shabaab now broadcasts um, or has uh, propaganda material in the Oromo language. And this is, uh, I think, an indication of Al-Shabaab's uh, Al growing ambition to penetrate and also to recruit from Ethiopia. For a number of years, the Al-Shabaab have targeted its recruitment among the Somali uh, speakers in the Somali region of Ethiopia, but also among Oromos in Oromia. That hasn't been successful for the factors which you mentioned, which is Ethiopia was at that time a very strong security state, had a very robust system of uh, local uh, surveillance and uh, local uh, intelligence gathering. Um, and so this, uh, this to some extent, uh, inoculated Ethiopia against the Al-Shabaab threat. Also, the government has been very proactive. They have dismantled Al-Shabaab cells. They have arrested uh, many Al-Shabaab operatives. But there has been ambition, and Al-Shabaab, uh, you know, no doubt, would like to target Ethiopia. And in the current context of uh, a weakening defense uh, system, we know, for, for example, that the Ethiopian National Defense Forces is now much more weakened than it was before. Many of the uh, regions, especially Oromia, uh, is in serious turmoil. There is an insurgency growing there. Um, and so this growing turmoil in Ethiopia and conflict is actually very ideal for Al-Shabaab to grow its strength, uh, to recruit, and in some instances to even build uh, tactical partnerships with some of these uh, armed actors in, in Ethiopia. I'm not saying this has already happened, but it is conceivable. Um, that the more Ethiopia descends to cry, uh, conflict and uh, the more uh, this conflict spreads to areas along the border, 
the greater the likelihood of actually al-shabab managing to infiltrate its fighters uh, to conduct uh, attacks presumably uh, not just on government targets but also on western targets so ethiopia i think is now much more vulnerable than it was before rashid you've given us a, a very good regional overview of where things stand uh, with the different jihadist groups and the you know and the different franchises between isis and al-Qaeda. Um, I, I want to talk, uh, switch a bit to sort of the, the regional approaches to all of this, if there even is one that we can, you know, credibly point to at the moment. That, you know, the, the main policy approach that we've seen on this continent when it comes to these jihadist movements has been a regional uh, security interventions, um, you know, and in the case of East Africa, very much Amasam. Um, d- does Amasam, you know, still count as a collective approach in your mind? And what, and what do you think is, is the future of it? I think um, there's no doubt that um, in the early years, Amisom did, did uh, some remarkable work um, in putting pressure on Al-Shabaab and clearing Al-Shabaab out of many urban um, you know, centers in Somalia, uh, including Mogadishu. Um, I think the biggest failure, of course, of, of Amisom is the fact that it didn't have, um, uh, I think, the mechanisms of holding territory um, in any case, that was not a role for, for Amazon. It was a role for, for the Somali uh, army. And so um, liberated territories uh, could not be held for long because the Somali national army was very dysfunctional. Um, and so the military uh, you know, gain was not sustainable uh, in Somalia for a long time. And at the moment, I think we are in a situation where probably Amisom has done what it could. Amisom in some ways has, has run its course um, and many countries are no longer willing for an open-ended uh, deployment. Um, there are domestic pressures on many of these troop contributing countries, especially Kenya. And so Amisom is now crafting its own exit uh, strategy. But I think in the wake of um, the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan, I think there definitely is a lot of uh, uh, soul searching and brainstorming going on, on really the risks of a very quick, sudden and haphazard withdrawal. So I suspect that uh, there will be more focus uh, in the coming few weeks and months into ways of ensuring that uh, Somalia does not end up becoming like Afghanistan. Um, and so I think the conversation has completely now changed from um, when should we pull out, but how, how are we going to pull out and which is the ideal condition for pulling out? And so I suspect that Amisom will be in Somalia for, for a long time, uh, at least not less than five years. That said, I think the positive uh, news is that the Somali National Army is now becoming uh, more stronger than it was before. Many specialized units are being trained. Uh, but at the same time, I think the biggest problem uh, is political dysfunction. There is no army that can function well to its optimal, uh, you know, level in a context where the, you know, politicians are at each other's top. So unless Somalia, uh, you know, uh, improves its governance uh, and unless we see uh, a much more stable political system, it is very unlikely that Al-Shabaab will be defeated. Coming back to the regional framework for tackling Al-Shabaab, I think there has been a lot of effort uh, in recent years to try to uh, build structures of and mechanisms of, of cooperation between these uh, countries. But still, 
I think um, intelligence dissemination and intelligence uh, sharing is still very, it's negligible. There are also rivalries within, within the EGAD countries. Um, despite the, the, the fact that they're all part of Amazon, part of EGAD, there are, I think, uh, um, growing rivalries and friction between states, which also hamper uh, the fight against uh, Al-Shabaab. But I think, uh, Alan, the biggest problem, of course, is that even if the cooperation between states were at its optimal, as long as uh, these governments continue to be poorly governed, you have pockets of huge discontent and grievances. Uh, you have marginalization. That is the great catalyst, is, is what gives these jihadi groups the kind of oxygen uh, which they need. Um, and so I would uh, probably emphasize less on cooperation, but more on, on better governance. Um, there is ample evidence that regions and areas that are better governed, where you know, politics is much more inclusive, where there is equitable distribution of resources, you tend to see less of these militant groups emerging. I would even argue that the biggest stabilizer in Northeastern Kenya has been uh, devolution because um, the devolved system um, empowered Somalis, uh, gave them the ability to uh, govern themselves. Um, huge resources are also being allocated from the central coffers towards the region. Uh, and this is uh, beginning to improve uh, the lives of people in Northeastern Kenya. Um, of course, sadly, uh, a lot of money is also being um, uh, siphoned by you know, corrupt elites. And that is a very sad uh, fact. But at the same time, I think the devolved system uh, in Kenya has actually diffused jihadism um, a lot. Of course, a lot needs to be done to improve also uh, the decentralized system to make it work better for uh, local people. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that the, um, the, the positive impact of devolution in Kenya is something that continues to be underappreciated. Um, I was, uh, your, your reflections on the impact of Afghanistan on Amazon withdrawal are interesting. I was speaking with a crisis group colleague about, you know, what the lessons would be from Afghanistan. And he mentioned, you know, that, that yes, it would probably increase uh, skepticism towards uh, state building, you know, these sort of externalized state building projects, but at the same time, we'll also make withdrawals from these existing contexts uh, that much more difficult. Um, I'm, I, I'm wondering um, if, you know, in, in Southern Africa, we're seeing right now, of course, uh, Sadiq move towards a uh, intervention in, in, in Mozambique. Um, are there any lessons from the Amazon example uh, for Sadiq that you think need to be applied? Sadiq, of course, has taken a longer time to respond to the Mozambique crisis. At the same time, I think it is too early, and so we should probably withhold judgment. Uh, clearly, the insertion of troops from Rwanda have definitely changed the dynamics, and um, the Rwandan-led units have uh, registered a lot of success. And this, I think, highlights also one, one aspect, which is that armies that are better trained, armies that are well-equipped, armies that have a longer pedigree and history of battlefield prowess tend to be much more better in really tackling jihadi problems. But unfortunately, I think it is largely because of political dysfunction and corruption that uh, the, the military in, in, in uh, Mozambique basically couldn't uh, handle that insurgency, which, which um, you know, comparably is still small. You know, it is, it is uh, a tiny region uh, in Northern Mozambique, which is the epicenter of this insurgency. 
At the same time, I think it is, it is um, uh, significant uh, and also positive that regional armies are beginning to uh, deploy. But I must caution that uh, when there is a proliferation of actors, all of them with, with different interests, there is bound to be pressure and there is bound to be tension. And that ultimately will lead to a serious dysfunction, dysfunction with that uh, peace enforcement operation. I would have probably preferred for one single actor uh, like Rwanda to have taken the lead and for the rest to not to be engaged in combat, but to provide technical uh, and logistical support. That way, I think we, we would probably see a much more quicker progress on the ground. Mm. Now, in, in terms of the policy approach, of course, uh, regional military interventions, you know, very militarized approach has been sort of the main one we've seen. But we've also, of course, seen across the continent um, and, and the world, really, the uh, the limitations of that approach. The You know, the other tool that, of course, everyone talks about is, is dialogue towards an actual settlement with these groups, although that's been very difficult to achieve in practice. You supported dialogue with with Al Shabaab um, in Somalia over a decade ago when this when this idea I think was was rather unpopular. Uh, first of all, why and is it too late now? I think you are right. Uh, there were times I really advocated for talks with Al Shabaab. I think um, talks and dialogue are always preferable than warfare. Uh, and ultimately, remember, no conflict ends in war. You know, conflicts um, most likely end. With, with talks on political settlement, and that will only come through dialogue. But I think dialogue has to be well-timed. Be, in the window between 2007 and 2009, when Al-Shabaab was still weak, when it hadn't become much more militant, when it was largely led by people who had political ambitions and less animated by global jihad, there was a, a possibility. And I, th- I remember at that time, Al-Shabaab did actually uh, try to send emissaries to the government to try to find a settlement. But then I think there was a perception on the other side, which is on the side of Amisom, but also on the, on the transitional national government, that victory was within reach and uh, it was just a matter of time. And I think the international uh, community, in particular the United States, was also convinced that victory was in sight and Al-Shabaab could still be beaten. And so all these factors, I think, basically closed the window for dialogue. And I think with that also came the escalation of, of drone strikes and uh, the growing decapitation campaign. All these setbacks, I think, made the movement much more militant, much more extreme. Now, in the current context, where probably Al-Shabaab is now much more dominant than its adversaries, where it feels it has the strength and capabilities to really uh, roll into, into villages the day Amazon leaves, I think the conditions for for dialogue have shrunk. I will be skeptical if Al-Shabaab today calls and says they want dialogue. I don't think it is a dialogue which is uh, from a place of weakness. It is is like the Taliban, you know, uh, it is a way for maneuvering and buying time and eventually timing and then moving into, into the cities. The Taliban example, I think, is a big cautionary tale that the jihadi groups are also capable of, of this kind of very uh, clear duplicity um, in which they understand the power dynamics in, in Afghanistan, but also in Somalia. Under pressure, probably Al-Shabaab would, 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 would accept dialogue, but not because they would change course or agree to make compromises, but basically dialogue would be another means to get what they want. Uh, and so in some ways, the Taliban uh, playbook 
is probably going to be, I think, uh, the playbook of choice for, for Al-Shabaab when and if they decide to uh, engage in dialogue. Yeah, I, I find this question of dialogue fascinating because uh, the examples in Afghanistan and I think uh, Somalia to a degree are that when the uh, jihadist groups are on their back foot, uh, no one in the Western world really supports dialogue. And then, of course, when they have a bit of the momentum, then uh, dialogue becomes more becomes more attractive for the Western world and for uh, those governments uh, in the countries, but of course, less so for the jihadists. Um, you know, you mentioned, of course, the impact of Afghanistan on on this future war with al-Shabaab. Um, and of course, the, you know, what's been going on in Afghanistan has really sort of hovered over this entire series. Uh, the shadow is incredibly strong. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, what do you think will ultimately be the impact? And then, you know, how does this war against al-Shabaab ultimately end? Excellent. That is a question that uh, fascinates me. And I think it is ultimately what the question, which I think is what will happen? What is the end game? For these groups. The Taliban claims that it is, it is not the Taliban of the old. Now, the, I think the hopeful scenario is a Taliban that becomes, because it is in power, will necessarily have to be uh, pragmatic, uh, learn to cut uh, local deals, but progressively become a much more softer group. And also because they need international recognition. So the same dynamic, I think, will be also in case Al-Shabaab comes to power. Those are the same issues which Al-Shabaab will have to grapple with. Al-Shabaab's um, view of women is the same as the Taliban, despite the fact that you know, the Taliban uh, come from an, a different strain of, of the Salafi uh, theology called uh, Diobandi, and predominantly Al-Shabaab is Wahhabi. Despite this uh, uh, difference, they all subscribe to a much more puritanical version of Islam. We will see the same kind of, I think, issues. But uh, I think there's no, mis there's, uh, you know, we shouldn't, uh, you know, be um, quick to uh, extrapolate from, from the situation in Afghanistan to Somalia. But I think the similarities are very extraordinary and, and very striking. And one factor which I think is quite important is that Al-Shabaab, um, still controls large chunks of South Central Somalia, rural Somalia. And the day Amisom leaves, Al-Shabaab will probably take over very quickly, the same way in which um, uh, the Taliban took over uh, Afghanistan. Al-Shabaab, uh, of course, is also increasingly riven within itself by, by divisions and also will have different outlooks, not too dissimilar from, from the situation in, in, uh, within the Taliban where you have these uh, big differences between the political wing and the military wing. And we haven't seen that, that kind of split image within Al-Shabaab, but I think it is because Al-Shabaab has not been involved in a peace process. Um, and once that, that happens, we will begin to see. It, there is also another, another, I think, important element to the jihadi story, which is jihadis, um, just like other insurgencies, also have their criminal elements. And just as in Taliban, have been involved in, in the gray economy in border regions, smuggling of uh, fuel, uh, the cultivation of poppy, uh, taxation of, uh, of uh, you know, motorists and roads and highways. We see the same pattern also in Somalia where um, Al-Shabaab um, uh, runs a very lucrative um, uh, protection racket in Mogadishu where they basically extort money from hotels and those that fail to pay um, specific sums of money would be targeted for military action, 
complex attacks. They also tax uh, farmers in south, south central Somalia. They also uh, tax uh, traders. They, they are involved in the sugar uh, smuggling uh, syndicate, uh, but also in the charcoal trade. So all these, I think, is, uh, paints a, a much more complex picture of um, Islamist insurgency than we had before. These are not purely ideological movements. They also ha have growing uh, um, you know, criminal elements in their ranks. Uh, in some ways, we are beginning to see the mafia, uh, mafiaization of, of uh, these insurgencies. And that, I think, is a pattern that will probably grow in future. Uh, playing off of uh, what you mentioned there, are, are, are Somalis now basically considering the, a possible future in which al-Shabaab uh, takes over uh, the country and rules it um, after watching Afghanistan? And, and do you think, you know, would regional states um, ever, ever accept that? As I said, uh, al-Shabaab is a resurgent organization. It has proved uh, extremely resilient very resourceful, very adaptable. It, it now controls significant uh, territory. It's also beginning to assert itself in central Somalia. Just uh, last week, there were reports that uh, the movement uh, has basically taken over very strategic towns in the central region of Galmaduk, again, feeding on the political dysfunction in that uh, regional state. Al-Shabaab has managed in recent years to penetrate the structures of security, the military, and basically is a much more formidable threat now to Somalia than it was in the past. In some ways, despite the fact that it was dislodged from Mogadishu and Kismayu and the key towns, Al-Shabaab has become even much more powerful. It is able to out-tax the state in Mogadishu. It is able to provide very swift but brutal judicial systems, which uh, local people find um, you know, is the alternative to a situation where there, is no, uh, there are no courts, you know, Al-Shabaab provides uh, social welfare systems for the poor in parts of uh, central Somalia by redistributing the zakat funds. So they have become a shadow government that is much more effective. And this has given them some legitimacy and credibility. And so Al-Shabaab is not just a military threat now. It is also basically a rival of the state. Uh, in some senses, it has actually co-opted or uh, infiltrated the state. And so the situation in Somalia is even more dire than, than Afghanistan. Rashid, these are uh, fascinating, really fascinating reflections. And it, it feels like it feels like that, you know, this is sort of the turning to a new chapter um, in this conversation after what's happened in Afghanistan. Um, what, one final question, just to sort of wrap this up. This podcast has touched on jihadist movements along the eastern Africa coast, but that, of course, falls into many different uh, regions and sub-blocks um, within Africa. And so you have the East African community, you have EGAD, you have now Sadiq getting involved in Mozambique. Um, is, is there a way to make a regional approach better? Uh, we've talked about it a bit, but I'm just wondering if, if you have any ideas on, on a way that, given how these are all connected, there could be a more coherent, uh, coordinated strategy. There's always no harm, I think, when, when states come together and cooperate, forge um, a common purpose and uh, clearly push towards some particular goal. I am deeply skeptical of the current situation because what you have essentially are a collection of highly dysfunctional states pulling together to tackle a formidable threat or enemy. And that dysfunction plays out on the field, in the militaries, in the way they coordinate themselves. And so... I go back to the fundamental point, which is that unless states become better governed, unless 
their politics is much more inclusive. Unless there is less corruption, unless militaries are professional, competent, we are not going to uh, win this war. You know, countries will begin to fall one after the other because, again, these groups do not feed on anything else, but they feed on the dysfunction of the state. Thank you, Rashid, for coming on and for your thoughts and reflections and, and doing a fabulous job of helping us close out this, this mini-series. Thank you very much, Alan, and appreciate the, the offer to come on this uh, fantastic podcast series. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Once again, The Horn is a podcast from the International Crisis Group, and this special summer series is produced in partnership with the Friedrich Ebert Foundation. Next week, we'll close up the series with a special episode reflecting on 20 years of the war on terror in the region. Make sure to tune in. I'm Alan Boswell, and this episode was produced by Mae Francis and Ida Holly Nambi.